poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world. How much further would a second Trump administration go on immigration? We'll take a look. For Sunday, February 11th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Ahead, we'll also talk about Trump's latest threat to America's NATO allies and what it means at a time of war in Europe. And we'll examine how the growing tension and conflict in the Middle East is playing out in Iraq. For Iraqis, we are really caught between an ally, which is the American, and a neighbor, which is the Iranian. They are fighting each other on our soil. And why advocates are worried about overfishing in the Chesapeake Bay. This species is so important to so many elements of the bay. We will also talk puppy bowl. First, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The White House says President Biden today urged Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu to take civilians into account in launching an offensive in Rafah to rout Hamas militants. This after Netanyahu ordered his military to come up with an evacuation plan for that city where more than one million Palestinians are sheltering from the war. And those people are asking where they should go. And Pierce Hadil Al-Salchi has more. About 1.4 million Palestinians are sheltering in Rafah, crammed into tents, schools and hospitals. Many of them have been displaced more than once. And now they may face another move after Prime Minister Netanyahu's call for a plan to evacuate before a possible ground invasion in the area. But many are at a loss. Where are they meant to go? Yusuf al-Sir Sawi was displaced twice before arriving in Rafah. He says his family may have to go back north to the destroyed city of Khan Yunus. Their threats are to be taken seriously, he says. It isn't far-fetched that the occupation forces enter Rafah and finish their military operation. Hadil al-Shalchi, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The Senate voted today to advance a $95 billion supplemental foreign aid bill that includes additional assistance to Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan. It doesn't include U.S. border provisions. It's the last procedural hurdle to allow a vote on its passage in the coming days. But even if it clears the Senate, some House Republicans oppose the aid to Ukraine. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg is criticizing former President Donald Trump for comments that he would not deter Russia from attacking allies with low defense spending. Terry Schultz reports Stoltenberg says Trump's comments endanger the U.S. as well as Europe. NATO Chief Stoltenberg insists any attack on a NATO nation would bring a united response from the 31-member alliance, despite Trump's suggestion that under his leadership, the U.S. may not be willing to defend countries which don't spend at least 2% of their GDP on their own military. Stoltenberg adds that such a view, quote, puts American and European soldiers at increased risk. It's unusual for Stoltenberg to respond to comments made by candidates in domestic political campaigns. Estonian security expert Christy Wright says European governments should spend more, regardless of who the next U.S. president may be. I hope these remarks by Trump are an ultimate wake-up call. Last year, only about a third of allies met the NATO target on defense spending. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. The Pentagon says Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin is at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center today for symptoms suggesting an emergent bladder issue. A spokesman says this time the White House, Congress, and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff have all been notified. Austin will continue his work from the hospital. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. An impending storm could dump up to a foot of snow in some places. WBUR meteorologist Danielle Noyes has the details. Snow arrives 2 to 4 a.m. Tuesday, ramps up from there. Heavy snow Tuesday morning through the afternoon, tapering 3 to 5 p.m. from west to east. A widespread 8 to 12 inches expected, including for Boston. A bit less on the south shore to Cape Cod, where some mixing occurs briefly at first, so generally 3 to 6 inches there. Treacherous travel Tuesday, with roads becoming nearly impassable at times with close to zero visibility. The coast gets battered with waves and minor coastal flooding. Some gusts of 55 miles per hour on Cape cod results in isolated damage and the storm is expected to impact the morning and afternoon commutes on tuesday an annual walk to raise awareness and funding for the increasing number of people experiencing homelessness was held today at boston common among the speakers before the walk sarah reed of salem told the crowd as someone who was homeless she needed to act you know i can't necessarily feel good about speaking for myself, but then I think about the people I've met and I'm like, no, I, I, somebody has to speak for these people. Organizers of the 8th Winter Walk say it was their largest turnout ever. AAA Northeast is warning drivers who will be on the road following tonight's Super Bowl. The Automotive Club cites data from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration that found 56% more crashes in Massachusetts involving injuries after the big game. That's more than there are typically in the weeks surrounding the Super Bowl. AAA's Mary McGuire says there are more people driving and more of them impaired. Everyone is looking to enjoy themselves, have a good time, and you can have a good time, but you need to choose a designated driver. You need to plan ahead for a sober ride home, book a ride share or a taxi. The federal crash data was compiled over the last five years. The Celtics defeated the Miami Heat this afternoon by a score of 110 to 106, cloudy and uh, 30s overnight, partly sunny 40s tomorrow before the snow. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. all things considered, from NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. Donald Trump was barely 200 words into the speech launching his first bid for the White House when he turned to an idea that would become central to his presidency. The U.S. has become a dumping ground for everybody else's problems. Immigration. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. Throughout his campaign, Trump repeatedly equated immigrants to criminals, and he pledged a crackdown on illegal immigration at the southern border, which of course gave birth to his signature slogan. Build that wall, build that wall, build that wall. But Trump also ran on sharp cuts to legal immigration, cuts that would fundamentally reshape U.S. immigration policy and potentially violate its constitution. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. And when Trump won the presidency, he got to work quickly to implement them. 
This is border security. On the fifth day of his presidency, he signed an executive order that would build his border wall. And then two days after that... We begin tonight with breaking news. Lawyers saying dozens and dozens of travelers are being detained right now at New York's JFK airport. This as a result of President Trump's controversial executive order banning citizens of seven Muslim-majority countries from entering the United States. This the first version of Trump's travel ban went into effect near instantaneously, while people were already in the air en route to the United States. In Trump's second year in office, the administration began separating parents who crossed the border illegally from their children. Here's Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen in May 2018. Don't break the law. I mean, that's why they're separated, because they're breaking the law. They're coming across the border, and they're breaking the law. In the United States, if you break the law, you go to jail, and you're separated from your family. Shouldn't be any different for illegal immigrants. As of last year, the American Civil Liberties Union said that up to 1,000 children had still not been reunited with their parents. Now, Trump is running for office again, and immigration and vilification of immigrants is still a centerpiece of his pitch. They're poisoning the blood of our country. That's what they've done. They poison mental institutions and prisons all over the world, not just in South America, not just the three or four countries that we think about, but all over the world. They're coming into our country from Africa, from Asia, all over the world. Throughout this presidential campaign, we are digging into what a second Trump administration would mean for this country. And for our cover story this week, we are looking at immigration where Trump has promised to take his crackdowns even further. Joining me now to talk about it is Franco Ordonez. He's joining me from Nevada, where he's covering the presidential campaign. In addition to covering the campaign, Franco has covered immigration, both during the Trump presidency and the Biden administration. Hey, Franco. Hey, Scott. So if you define a unifying framework for Trump's immigration policies during his presidency, how would you describe it? I mean, this has been his bread and butter issue ever since, you know, he rode down the escalator at Trump Tower and said those words that you just played at the top about not bringing their best. I mean, he has been stoking fears and anger about immigrants from the beginning. He did it in his campaign and he really carried it to when he was president. And you laid it out very well. I mean, he introduced some of the harshest policies the country has ever seen. The border wall, the travel ban, refusing asylum to migrants coming at the border. That was Title 42, of course. Remain in Mexico. People had to stay in Mexico as they awaited asylum proceedings. And of course, there was the zero tolerance policy, as you said, family separation. And that just led to a national scandal when thousands of yeah. kids were being separated. And when you look at what Trump was trying to do, did these policies work? Did they reduce immigration to this country? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the toughest questions I get asked about Trump's uh, immigration policies. I mean, I think it's fair to say that the results were mixed. It did stop migrants for a bit. You know, historically, though, that happens when almost any new policy is introduced. Smugglers kind of wait to get a feel for it. But these numbers are cyclical and smugglers eventually adjust. And they did for Trump, too, even after some of these harshest policies. Child separation was back in 2018, and it was only months later that the numbers started going up again. And then in early 2019, Trump was just furious with record levels of migration. I mean, do you remember uh, all those firings at DHS? Mm -hmm. You pointed out Kirsten Nielsen. Well, she resigned under this pressure when Trump wanted to get tougher. I mean, he talks a lot on the campaign now about how everything was hunky-dory, that there wasn't problems on the border, but that's not really true. It's not really true at all. There were a lot of problems. 
And immigration has continued to be a big political issue. And uh, he's talking a lot about it as he runs again. He's often at times, as we heard, using historically fascist language to talk about this issue. When it comes to policies, what do we know about what Trump would want to do if he returns to the White House? He's expected to return to many of these policies that we've been talking about, but, you know, he's also talking about expanding them. You know, he's promised the biggest deportation operation in America, a return to remain in Mexico, an expanded travel ban. He wants ideological screenings to root out sympathizers of Hamas and extremist groups. You know, he's talked about ending birthright citizenship. And Scott, even when he was pressed uh, last year about restarting the zero tolerance policy, that family separations, you know, he wouldn't rule it out. Well, when you have that policy, people don't come. If the family hears that they're going to be separated, they love their family. They don't come. So I know it sounds harsh. Franco, there is an interesting dynamic here that's worth talking about for a few moments, because even though the rhetoric of the Biden administration is obviously way different than the Trump administration when it comes to immigration. But I think it surprised a lot of people that the Biden administration kept a lot of Trump border policies in place. And they've really gotten criticized for that by Biden's own base. Yeah, Latino advocates have really, really been angry about that. I mean, Biden did end the travel ban. He stopped building of the wall, at Mm -hmm. least temporarily. You know, and he introduced legislation that would legalize millions of people here illegally. But he kept Title 42. He actually defended it in court for more than a year as advocates tried to shut it down. And then later, recently, a few months ago, he's even started building more wall. And kind of as you point out, you know, things are really starting to get crazy that Biden is starting to sound more and more like Trump. He's talking about shutting the border down uh, and suspending asylum. And a lot of this came to a head this past week when you saw a bipartisan bill introduced in the Senate that would deal with a lot of these immigration issues. Biden came out and supported it. uh, But then you saw it collapsed, mostly because Trump weighed in, urging Republicans to kill it. This is something Trump bragged about. A lot of the senators are trying to say respectfully they're blaming it on me i said that's okay please blame it on me please because they were getting ready to pass a very bad bill franco what what is trump and his camp thinking here why is he willing to attach himself to the collapse of 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 a piece of legislation trying to fix something that there is broad support for fixing in this country i mean it's politics it's very much politics i mean this is such a bad issue for biden polls show voters trust republicans more than democrats on the issue and it's something that really, really excites the Republican base. Uh, and and recently, it's looking more like the general electorate also is concerned about the borders. You have Democratic governors and mayors calling for Biden to do more. I mean, in strong, strong language. I mean, this whole issue just helps Trump politically. I mean, the biggest case that he is making uh, in Iowa, in New Hampshire, here in Nevada, is that only he can fix the border, that they need to return to his policies. So he doesn't really want Biden to do it before he can, or he doesn't want people thinking that Biden can do it. You mentioned you're talking to us from Nevada. You're there covering the the Republican caucuses, which Trump just won easily. This is a state with with a lot of Latino voters. Immigration is a big issue in Nevada. What did you hear from Latino voters? Yeah, I mean, like a lot of Americans, Latino voters are very concerned about Trump's language. I mean, you have so many mixed families here with loved ones who are undocumented. 
And this idea, this talk of mass deportations is causing a lot of fear and anxiety. But I, I mean, I got to tell you, Scott, I, I was also surprised to hear more voices, Latino voices, advocating for mm. stronger borders. They were talking about concerns of competition, you know, other immigrants crossing in line, telling me that a lot of the people crossing the border aren't even Latinos. And that was, this is kind of a first for me. I mean, you hear some of this in Miami, you know, a different type of, you know, Latino electorate, but hearing it here where there are a lot of, you know, Latin American, South American, uh, Central Americans, it was surprising to hear uh, that kind of voice and that kind of openness. Interesting. Uh, so Trump spoke the night uh, that he won the caucuses. It was an interesting day for him. The day began with, with Supreme Court oral arguments uh, tied to whether or not Trump should be allowed on the ballots due to January 6th. Did Trump talk about immigration in his victory speech? Yeah, I mean, another surprise was how short his speech was. I mean, it was actually only 12 minutes. I mean, Trump usually goes on a lot longer than that. But again, immigration is such a big issue. Border is such a big issue. So it was, uh, you know, a central part of the, you know, the victory speech. You know, and he used a lot of the invasion type language, you know, playing off the fears of immigrants and sending, you know, the worst of the worst, you know, that we've heard all along. Uh, you know, he's promising to, you know, clamp down on the border. But again, you know, he's stoking those fears and anger about, you know, what what people feel about migration. And I think it shows what we're going to continue to hear from the former president over the course of the next year. NPR's Franco Ordonez joining us from Nevada, where he's covering the presidential campaign. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks for being with us. WBUR supporters include The Huntington, presenting Stand Up If You're Here Tonight, a man seeking audience, a one-man, one-audience show. Experience The Huntington like never before in the intimate Masso Studio, 264 Huntington Ave., now through March 3rd. Tickets and more info at HuntingtonTheater.org. Partly cloudy overnight, 30s, and partly sunny, 40s tomorrow. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square. With private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out, cambridgeculinary.com. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. Stanhopeframers.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The Senate voted today to advance a $95 billion supplemental foreign aid bill that includes additional assistance for Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan. They passed a procedural vote to allow full consideration in the coming days. It doesn't, though, include U.S. border provisions. The Pentagon says Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin is at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center today for symptoms suggesting an emergent bladder issue. A spokesman says the White House and Congress, along with the Deputy Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, have all been notified. And at the weekend box office, Argyle took the top spot with just $6 million in ticket sales. The spy thriller has taken in $28 million domestically. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. 
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Scott Detrow. The United States currently has an estimated 2,500 troops stationed in Iraq. That's according to the Associated Press. But the two countries are in talks over how long those troops will stay. This is just one of the repercussions of the current conflict in the Middle East and a recent escalation in attacks between the U.S. and militias backed by Iran. NPR's Jane Roth sent us this report from Baghdad. This was the scene in Baghdad from a funeral for a senior commander of the most powerful Iran-backed militia here, assassinated in the street in a U.S. drone strike. Hundreds of fighters crowded the streets. A dozen of them carried the coffin of Abu Bakr Saadi, a commander of Qatab Hezbollah, the Party of God Brigades, draped in a flag and covered with plastic flowers. This feels like it might be a turning point because this is not something that Qatab Hezbollah will forget. This funeral ceremony for a single man is more elaborate than that for 17 of their fighters killed on a base near Syria recently. A militia speaker, Sheikh Abu Talib Asayadi, praised the commander as a resistance fighter, saying he was involved in 25% of more than 200 attacks on U.S. and Israeli targets. Today, thanks to God Almighty and with the blessings of the Islamic resistance in Iraq and everyone for this brave, heroic, and holy stance with the people of Gaza. Two weeks ago, a militia attack on a U.S. base in Jordan killed three U.S. service people. The U.S. says it bore the fingerprints of Qatab Hezbollah. It killed Assadi in a drone strike in retaliation. Iraq's national security advisor, Qasem al-Araji, is one of the mourners. He tells us that strike made clear the need to disband the U.S.-led military coalition. This incident will reinforce the necessity of ending the international coalition's mission. I believe that one year is sufficient for the coalition forces to leave Iraq. While Assad was attacking the U.S., a close ally of Iraq, here's the complication. As Al-Arji notes, the militia he belonged to, one that fought the militant Sunni group ISIS, is now part of Iraq's official security forces. The man is a fighter and a leader of the popular mobilization forces. The popular mobilization forces are a national institution, and they are part of the security system. So this is a targeting of the sovereignty of the Iraqi state. The Qatab Hezbollah spokesman, Mohammed Mahi, says the U.S. will pay a heavy price. He is one of our major leaders that the United States dared to target. God willing, we will confront the United States and not only expel it from Iraq, but the entire region as well. 
Before the assassination, Kataab Hezbollah said it would suspend attacks on the U.S. in deference to the Iraqi government. That all changed after the drone strike. Kataab Hezbollah is part of a coalition of mostly Iran-backed Shia militias targeting the U.S. and Israel. They're loosely connected to groups in other countries, like Iran-backed Hezbollah in Lebanon, whose leader, Hassan Nasrallah, is fighting Israel across the Lebanese border. In Baghdad, we sat down with a spokesman for one of the other militias in the coalition, Kataab Sayyid Shuhada. For Sheikh Khadam al-Fartusi, this is a holy fight. Al-Fartusi says, under Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein, Iraqis were dragged into devastating wars with Iran and over Kuwait. Those wars were imposed on Iraq, but today the Iraqis are choosing this war. This war confirms that they belong to their homeland and to Iraqi sovereignty, and also confirms their belonging to the Arab and Islamic people in support of Palestine and Gaza. But in the streets and the glitzy cafes springing up in Baghdad, Iraqis are not choosing war. Most people not involved in militias are just trying to live their lives, find jobs, study, raise children in what they hope will eventually be a peaceful and prosperous country. It's a far cry from the chance of death to America and death to Israel at the militia events. It was mostly young fighters killed in the U.S. strike on an Iraqi militia base near the Syrian border, the first of the U.S. retaliatory strikes after the attack on its base in Jordan. Iraqi officials say militia leaders have left for Iran. Iraq's foreign minister, Fawad Hussein, tells us it's a difficult atmosphere to hold discussions on U.S. forces. I mean, there will be attacks on counter-attacks. Then it will be difficult to negotiate. We cannot negotiate through bullets. The U.S. believes there should be a smaller U.S. military presence here, but still a presence. Hussein says there's a more basic question. Which kind of relationship do we want with the American? For Iraqis, we are really caught between an ally, which is the American, and a neighbor, which is the Iranian. And they are fighting each other on our soil, so this is very strange. Hussein canceled meetings with Iranian officials after Iran attacked a private home in the Kurdistan region of Iraq, claiming without proof it was an Israeli intelligence base. He says it's because Iran is afraid to attack Israel directly. They, they must stop these kinds of attacks because they know that what they are talking about is baseless. But uh, they are attacking us. If it is an attack against Israel, Israel is somewhere else. It's not, uh, it's not in Iraq. The foreign minister, who is Kurdish, says since most Kurdish and Sunni parties want U.S. troops to stay in Iraq, any decision has to be a joint one. 21 years ago, the U.S. invaded this country. It toppled Saddam Hussein, but created a security vacuum. Following a civil war and then the war against the Sunni militant group ISIS, Iraq, while still volatile, has become a lot calmer in the last five years. During a religious commemoration in Baghdad last week, millions of pilgrims walked to the shrine of a Shia imam. Ceremonies banned under Saddam and later bombed by militant Sunni groups during the sectarian war. These pilgrims are walking in safety. In 
in the air, an Iraqi military helicopter hung with a huge religious banner keeps watch. The Shia, a majority in Iraq, are grateful for the religious freedom. But most don't want the complications of having U.S. forces here. An off-duty policeman, Qad Hassan Hussein, is near a gas burner stirring a huge pot of rice to help feed the pilgrims. A question, he says. He's saying that if you're in your house and a stranger comes and he wants to enter and tell you who comes in and out, would you, would you accept that? Two decades on for many Iraqis, the U.S. is not just a stranger at the door, but a threatening one. Jane Araf, NPR News, Baghdad. Thailand looks set to clamp down on the recreational use of marijuana, this just 18 months after it was decriminalized. The country's health minister is set to present a new bill this week. Michael Sullivan reports from Bangkok. I'm standing on Bangkok's Sukhumvit Road, near the Asok metro station. It's a tourist-friendly neighborhood where cannabis dispensaries and mobile vans sprouted like, well, weeds after it was decriminalized in June 2022. There's at least seven stores within a few hundred meters of me, and there's over a thousand stores which have opened in other parts of the city, businesses that could be facing an uncertain future if the new law passes. This wasn't what the government had in mind when it decriminalized cannabis. The idea was to help Thailand tap into the multi-billion dollar medical marijuana business worldwide and provide poor Thai farmers a more lucrative alternative to planting rice or rubber. But that decision was rushed, the rules unclear, and the loopholes many. And suddenly, it seemed you could smell weed being smoked everywhere. A backlash was inevitable. Don't forget, we are still a very conservative country. Chakwan Kirichopaka is a Thai cannabis rights activist and entrepreneur. You can go ask any Thai on the side of the road, going like, what do you think about medical cannabis? Everyone will go, this is great, fully support it. But then if you go into, what about sales? What about recreational use? There's still a, uh, we're not so sure. The country's new prime minister, Shweta Tawasin, is sure. And the new bill is an effort to make good on a campaign pledge to snuff out recreational use altogether, which he made clear in an interview with Bloomberg TV shortly after taking office. It's just for medical reason. We need uh, the law re- need, need to be rewrite. We, we have agreement among, among all the 11 parties that this will be this government policies because the, the problem about drugs has been widespread lately. But with thousands of licensed shops and growers all over the country in an industry that's already attracted serious investors, one analyst predict could be worth billions in just a few years, can the government really put the genie back in the bottle? No, I don't think they can. Chakwan Kitty Chopaka. I just don't see it happening. Overall, it is kind of to save face and then hopefully the press no longer talks about it. Technically, recreational use and sale is already banned. They're just enforcing that ban with penalties. Stiff penalties, including a 60,000 baht fine, about $1,700 for smoking recreationally, even at home. Those selling the plant or its extracts for recreational use could face a 100,000 baht fine, a year in jail, or both. But she expects the impact of the new rules 
to be minimal. There will be some store that will close down because they are only making money out of things that they are not allowed to sell in the first place. Joints, edibles, extract. So they may shut down, which then may be better business for us that are left because we don't have any of those products. But she does have buds, flowers, and she reckons she and everyone else with a license will still be able to sell them even if the new bill passes. You'll still be able to buy flowers, but you'll probably have to really show ID this time or like, you know, there's probably a little bit less stuff that you'll get to see on the shelf like equipments and whatnot, because they can consider that as part of recreational. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. How was this day? Oh, sorry. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. At her tiny shop near Asok, there's a steady stream of customers by late morning. One of her regulars is a man named Robert, who says he's been here for 20 years and preferred not to give his last name, given Thailand's drug policies in the past. I've lived here through, you know, the harshest of times where you could do five years in a prison for having some marijuana. So the whole paranoia that used to exist around purchasing and smoking weed here was pretty serious. So, yeah, I think they should not go back to how things were before. Down the road at Sukhumui, one of the first dispensaries to open after decriminalization, owner Soranut Mashavanich isn't too worried either. But if the new restrictions get too onerous, he says, he's ready for that, too. I just sell weed underground. I can go sell it underground again. I don't care. I make more money underground anyway. <laughs> for NPR News, I'm Michael Sullivan in Bangkok. Coming up tomorrow on All Things Considered, we visit a store where you can find all sorts of chocolate delights and where it is impossible to miss the fact that chocolate has become very expensive lately. Pre-pandemic, our Belgian chocolates were around $65 a pound, and they're now $85 a pound. So it has really gone up. The reason? The price of cocoa, the key ingredient in chocolate, has broken a 47-year record. Yep, just in time for Valentine's Day. Tune in tomorrow to learn why the cost is rising and what it means for consumers. You can listen on the radio or just ask your smart speaker to play NPR or for your member station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Today is the big game. Millions of viewers will tune in to watch players give it their all for a chance to win the championship and maybe get a treat or a belly rub too. That's right, we are talking about the puppy ball. It's Falcor with the spiky ball. Touchdown! Touchdown, Team Rough! The adorable alternative to the Super Bowl is marking its 20th anniversary this year. It has grown to be a fan favorite. Last year, more than 13 million viewers tuned in to watch Team Rough and Team Fluff go head to head. The Puppy Bowl loosely follows the basic gameplay of football. There are rules and points and penalties. And they are strictly enforced by Dan Schachner, the Puppy Bowl's referee since 2012. Dan, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me, Scott. First of all, I want to know how you got this job because it seems like a great job. <laughs> There's no 
there's no blueprint for this job, is there? Yeah. Um, I had hosted a variety of programs for Animal Planet, which was the, uh, you know, the network it all started on. And uh, they needed somebody who could not just call the game, but also become a spokesperson because the show was growing. So they needed somebody to sort of um, speak for these dogs that don't have a voice of their own and uh, get the word out about their shelters, about the fact that they're all up for adoption and promote the show. So I put together an audition video just filmed myself officiating random dogs and New York City dog parks and cobbled it together. Um, and uh, somehow they bought it. And here I am 13 years later. It's it's gig of a lifetime. For the three or four people listening who have not had the pleasure of watching the Puppy Bowl, can can you explain what, when we talk about rules, what do we need to know? And, and also, you, you mentioned these dogs are up for adoption. How do the dogs make their way to our TVs? Like, what's the process here? On the team bus, first of all, that's how they get to the stadium. Uh, they get drafted, they go through a combine and a skills test. No, basically, we try to mirror human football, except for the fact that our rules to your initial question are quite loose and simple. Mm -hmm. It is a four-quarter football game. Smaller breeds are in the first quarter, and we work our way up to the larger baby Great Danes in the fourth quarter. They are divided into two teams, Team Rough and Team Fluff. And at the end, we crown a winner. They receive the coveted Lombarki Trophy. And we also give uh, an award to MVP, Most Valuable Pup. And because we're the Puppy Bowl and we celebrate all kinds of dogs, we also celebrate the worst performing dog by giving him the Underdog Award. <laughs> Perhaps a dog that sat on the sidelines and slept the entire game, but is still adorable. They will also receive an accolade. Yeah. You know, in the, in the two-week lead-up to the Super Bowl, everyone's always going through historic highlight reels, greatest moments, top five, top ten, whatever. What to you are some of the more iconic Puppy Bowl moments of, of your tenure? I can say my very first Puppy Bowl, I experienced a first, which is in Puppy Bowl 8. That's when I first started. We saw the first ever double touchdown. Two dogs, Augusta and Funzy. They each were holding two separate balls, went into the end zone at the exact same time. Uh, that had never been seen before, unprecedented. We conferred with our judges and everyone agreed we would count both touchdowns. Last year, first time ever, two teams were tied at the end of regulation. So we had to go into our first ever overtime. We called it Rover time and Team Fluff edged out with a victory. So um, there is a, literally there are firsts, several firsts every single year. The show continues to surprise us and uh, we can't wait for people to tune in on Sunday. I love that you talk about it like the cutting edge of athletics, like somebody breaks a barrier for the very first time. It's a big deal, like the four minute mile. And then it just becomes commonplace once somebody goes first. Yes, exactly. We reward everything. <laughs> Dan Shackner is the referee of the Puppy Bowl. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks for having us. Take care, Scott. This is NPR. Many young people turn to social media for information on mental health. So a team at Harvard is asking influencers to help spread evidence-based information. Use their gifts for storytelling and communication, but for good. Trying to have a good influence on influencers. Monday on Morning Edition from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Winston Flowers and support for WBUR, the perfect pairing for Valentine's Day. Order by noon tomorrow for Tuesday delivery at WBUR.org. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And Becoming a Man at ART, a new play from acclaimed author P. Carl and Tony Award-winning director Diane Paulus, starts February 16th, amrep.org. In the forecast, we'll have partly cloudy skies overnight with temps uh, dropping into the 30s. Partly sunny tomorrow with temps in the 40s, and then the trouble begins. Snow will start uh, during the overnight hours on uh, Tuesday morning with a winter storm watch in effect for up to a foot of snow in the greater Boston area and uh, less on the South Shore and the Cape, probably in the 3 to 6 inch vicinity. But uh, the problem on the Cape could be winds gusting as high as 55 miles an hour, which could cause scattered power outages and property damage. Again, a winter storm watch goes into effect for tomorrow night through Tuesday night. Right now in Boston, quiet and 45 degrees. PR comes from the station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's all things considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Saturday night during a rally in South Carolina, former President Donald Trump told the crowd about a meeting that he said he had as president. In it, he claimed he warned America's NATO allies about what would happen if their countries did not, in his view, contribute enough money to the alliance. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay, you're delinquent. He said, yes, let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. As President Trump often expressed skepticism about NATO and frequently said things that undermined the North Atlantic military alliance. But this weekend's language sounded a lot more like a threat and comes at a moment when Trump has taken a more extreme turn on many of the policies he pushed for during his four years in office. What would a NATO skeptical president mean in the midst of the Russia-Ukraine war, among other factors? We called up Kathleen McInnes, a NATO expert who currently works as a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, to talk about it. Hey, Kathleen. Hey, thank you for having me. So what, if anything, struck you as different about these latest remarks? The context in which that they are taking place, when we look at what Russia's appetite is, if they win in Ukraine likely the war will be taken to NATO territories. It's essentially saying that the, the American president, if, if he's elected, would be okay with a more aggressive mm-hmm. um, expansionist Russia on NATO territories. What in this moment do you think the real world implications would be if Russia or other actors did not think the U.S. would live up to its NATO promises? It's hard to overstate how dangerous the world would be if we get to this place where the United States is abrogating its alliance commitments. Candidate Trump is 
talking a lot about how NATO's allies aren't paying their fair share. Mm -hmm. But it's not as if the United States doesn't get a lot of strategic benefits out of uh, its participation in NATO. We wouldn't have the position of global leadership that we do if it wasn't for our NATO allies and our commitment to European security. I should just point out, this isn't like money that, that NATO countries pay the United States. This is a promise to spend a certain amount of money on defense that, that all NATO countries have. And it is a fact that a lot of them don't actually meet those benchmarks. And that's something that you've had Marco Rubio and other Trump allies say today, saying, look, he's just continuing to express frustration that Democratic and Republican presidents have had. They just haven't framed it that way. Is there a point there at the bottom of this? You know, the allies and the United States have been bickering about, you know, whether or not they're meeting their spending targets on defense spending since the inception of the alliance, basically. What is new is this notion that we would pull out of the alliance or that we would allow Russia to invade a NATO territory because of a failure to spend the requisite amount of money. Interestingly enough, if you think about what NATO nations are spending on national security more broadly, not just military capabilities and defense, the picture's actually much better. Uh, My colleagues and I at CSIS have been doing a study when actually suggests that over 12 allies are spending more than 4% of their GDP on what we would consider national security spending, and another 10 are spending 3% of their GDP on what we'd call national security responsibility sharing. They are spending these monies in ways that help the alliance. Mm-hmm. It's just not calculated in that narrow 2%. That's Kathleen McGinnis with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. In Virginia, some little fish are at the center of a big decades-long fight. They're called Menhaden. Conservationists worry that overfishing is harming the ecosystem in the Chesapeake Bay. Industry says there's no evidence of that. And scientists say they need more research to settle the debate. But as Catherine Hafner of Station WHRO reports, state lawmakers would need to foot the bill. On a breezy afternoon, Captain Chris Dollar steers his boat across the water in Gloucester, Virginia. Quite pleasant right now. Dollar owns a charter fishing business and has spent his whole life along the Chesapeake Bay. So he's seen a lot of menhaden. He says they're not the most glamorous fish. I wouldn't call them ugly, but I, you know, I wouldn't call them, you know, poster children for the Chesapeake writ large. But the Menhaden has become a kind of poster child for the Chesapeake Bay. The small, silver fish are a crucial part of the bay's ecosystem. They're a key food source for everything from ospreys to bigger fish like striped bass that local sport fishers treasure. Now, Dollar and others worry Menhaden are at risk of disappearing. He says he sees drastically fewer fish than he used to. The density of the schools, where it might be, you know, size of a football field, is now just maybe a tennis court. And you see those smaller and smaller numbers. Sport fishing and conservation groups pin the blame on one company, Omega Protein. It's the last player from an industry that once spanned the East Coast, harvesting menhaden from Maine to Florida. Virginia is the last place on the Atlantic that allows this type of fishing, which turns millions of menhaden into fish meal and fish oil. It's been controversial for decades, but in recent years, it's become even more heated. Local fishermen sometimes post videos of Omega's boats on social media, complaining about the scale of the industry, which uses purse seines, or giant nets, to scoop up massive swarms of menhaden. Absolutely destroying what's left of the Chesapeake Bay. Critics now want state officials to shut down Omega in the bay. 
But Omega says the industry is already tightly regulated. Monty Deal is CEO of Ocean Harvesters, which runs Omega's fishing fleet. First of all, you know, we've been fishing here since 1878. The footprint of Menhaden fishing in the Chesapeake Bay is as low now as it's probably been in 60 or 70 years. He shows me around the company's plant in Reedville, Virginia, and points out giant bins holding the previous day's catch. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that, that's what a million Menhaden looks like. From these bins, he says, the Menhaden move through the plant. We use 100% of that fish. You know, we cook the fish, we squeeze it, we press it. The resulting fish meal and fish oil goes into products like pet food and omega-3 supplements. Deal says banning omega from the Chesapeake Bay would force the whole plant to close, costing more than 200 local jobs. And he says critics are ignoring the data. They're not being objective about the fishery. You know, they don't understand the fishery and they're not listening to the science. That science is at the center of the debate. The overall population of Atlantic Menhaden crashed during the 20th century, but it bounced back after commercial fishing was limited. Rob Latour studies Menhaden at the Virginia Institute of Marine Science. Quite frankly, if this were any other species, I think we'd all be celebrating. <laughs> but the available data looks at the fish's habitat along the entire East Coast, Critics worry that could obscure a decline happening specifically in the Chesapeake Bay. Latour says that could be true, but it needs to be studied. I don't fault people for thinking about that, but it's a very complicated thing to actually determine with sufficient evidence scientifically. The things you need to know, we don't know. Advocates want more research to close that data gap. After a year of negotiations, they hoped Virginia lawmakers would approve a new study this session. But instead, the study was tabled until at least next year. It's a big disappointment for the bill not to go forward. Delegate Lee Ware, a Republican from west of Richmond, sponsored the bill. This species is so important to so many elements of the babe. Conservation groups say Omega lobbied against the bill, though the company denies that. Dollar, the fishing captain, has been involved with conservation for 30 years. He says there's an old saying in fishery politics. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Well, I've amended that. When it comes to Menhaden, particularly in Virginia, it's an ultramarathon, not just a marathon. That ultramarathon continues. Advocates are already asking state regulators to halt the fishery until more is known about potential impacts. For NPR News, I'm Katherine Hafner in Norfolk, Virginia. And now it is time for our weekly look at the Oscars. The big night takes place on March 10th, and in the lead-up, we are casting a critical eye at the Oscars of years past. Last week, we talked about all the times that Oscars got it wrong. There was a lot to talk about. But this week, we want to focus on the times that Oscar got it right, from the awards to the ceremony itself. So for that, we called up Michael Shulman, staff writer for The New Yorker and author of the book Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears. Welcome to All Things Considered. Hi, thanks for having me. Off the top of your head, what's a year or what's an award where you think, yep, they got that right, that holds up? I would say that Moonlight winning Best Picture in 2017 has really held up well. And not just that. I mean, I like La La Land. Of course, it was an insane way that it all played out with the envelope mix-up. Oh, yeah. there's, there's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Moonlight won. Come on, this is not a joke. Come this on. is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. I like a Best Picture winner that is not only just, you know, the a movie that, that holds up 
and stands the test of time, but a win that kind of is feels a little spicy and new and kind of redefines what a Best Picture winner looks like. And I felt like Moonlight really did that. Do you feel like that would have been a statement no matter what? Because it was certainly a statement when they said, it's La La Land. Just kidding. It is a wildly different movie. It's Moonlight. (laughs) I mean, not only that, but it came after the entire year of the Oscars So White saga at the Academy. And so, uh, you know, I had reported on that year and watched it very closely and there was so much sturm and drang in Hollywood about, about that and about the diversification of the Academy that came after that. And then there was the Trump election. Like, there was just a lot going on in the world. And for Moonlight to come out of that year as the victor, you know, it, it fit the moment, but it was also just a beautiful movie that deserved to be honored in that way and deserved to be seen as a classic. What to you is a really iconic year of Best Picture nominees? What is a year that sticks out to you? Like, what a great mix of movies. Okay, I think the best picture lineup of all of Oscar history was The Ceremony of 1976. Are you ready for these five movies? I'm ready. By the way, tell me the one that doesn't belong. (laughs) It's a very obvious one. Okay, so the nominees were One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Belong. Dog Day Afternoon. Nashville, Barry Lyndon, and Jaws. You're going to need a bigger boat. With, with due respect to Barry Lyndon, I think that's the other there. Really? I mean, I would say, just... no, I mean, I think, I think Barry Lyndon is, to some Kubrick heads, like the ultimate masterpiece. It was probably the least loved mm-hmm. of those five at the time. But to me, like, the fact that Jaws is in there with these sort of, these sort of, like, acclaimed masterpieces. You know, Jaws was a real populist hit. It was kind of yeah. the Barbie of that year. One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest won all the major awards that year. And then Jaws was the only one that didn't get a director nomination. Spielberg was snubbed. So that's what I think is so interesting about that year, is that the movie that won kind of represented the world of filmmaking that Jaws was kind of chomping to bits with his, you know. (laughs) Let's talk about ceremonies for a minute. Were there years that you thought they were pulled off particularly memorably in a way that was intentional? So excluding mixing up the Best Picture uh, winner or, or, you know, certain stars, I won't say who, slapping other certain stars on stage? You know how people say that um, your favorite cast of Saturday Night Live is whichever cast was on when you started watching the show. I feel that way about the Oscars because I remember so clearly in the early 90s when I started to watch, and it was the era of the Billy Crystal opening medley. To me, those medleys are so funny, and they're so delicious, and... You know, I still remember how they go. Like, I remember him going into the audience and singing to Clint Eastwood, Unforgiven, that's what you are. You killed everyone, cause you're the star. Come here, you big mayor. You <laughs> so I, you know, I don't think, I don't know if those ceremonies as a whole were, you know, they all kind of drag, yeah. you know, in the middle. But those, but his hosting and his uh, his medleys, I just thought were, so good. Do you think like the Billy Crystal style host still works? Because I feel like everyone comes in now with like 
sarcasm and takedowns. And sometimes that works. And sometimes it's, you know, as we saw in the Golden Globes this year, a total disaster. You know, you can't just drop in a stand-up comedian like at the Globes this year. You kind of need someone who's a little bit inside the business and a little bit outside, but not too irreverent about it. Um, and I think Billy Crystal and Whoopi Goldberg, who both hosted a lot in the 90s, were kind of in that mold. And they were also kind of, they were sort of broad entertainers. They could, I mean, with Billy Crystal, he has a touch of borscht belt. He can sing and dance and, you know, entertain. And I, I, don't, I just don't know if we have that kind of person in popular culture so much anymore. The next thing I want to ask about is representation. Is there a year that you can think of where the nominees and the winners did actually do a good job of being more representative and 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 reflecting the country as a whole? Well, um, you say the country. What about the world? I mean, I think the year that Parasite won was really exciting because that was the first non-English language movie to win Best Picture. And I felt that was another win like Moonlight that shifted the perception of what a uh, Best Picture winner could look like and even what language it could be spoken in. I also think back to... Um, 2002 was a major year for Black Hollywood at the Oscars. Uh, You know, people remember, of course, Halle Berry being the first Black woman to win Best Actress for Monsters Ball. But it was also Denzel uh, Washington winning his second Oscar. um, And uh, Sidney Poitier came back and got an honorary award. I'll always be chasing you, Sidney. I'll always be following in your footsteps. There's nothing I would rather do, sir. And Denzel was the first black man to win Best Actor since he had in 1964. So it just, when you watch those moments,